I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. for you to welcome Janie Bradley Blake. I am one of the granddaughters of John Wesley Bradley, Virginia Carrier, was the, my grandmother, the daughter of Nader Bradley and Janie B. Monroe. Now, there are four families there together, so you can see that I am one of the Bradley Carriers going, Evans, Edward, Coleman, um, Robinson, and the Hall family. And I deem it an honor to have that many um, ancestors, and many are still alive today. Those are the threads that wove my life. I was born in Levy County, not in Rosewood, but I was born in Levy County. So when you start my talking about Rosewood, I can tell you many things that I've heard, the things that I have seen growing up as a child there, and the many of the people that I know. Of course, there are some still don't want you to mention names, but when I start thinking about my mother being a childbearing mother and having to nurse many of the people, um, if they only know that I know and still alive and see them quite often, I think they'd blank. <laughs> so that would make uh, some of them just as close as my sisters or brothers. The families of Rosewood were homeowners, owned land, had uh, fields, livestock, sugar mill, turpentine still, and much more. When we think about the type of work that the men did, they were puckwood. Now, I don't know if any of you all know what puckwood is, but my father was uh, one of the men that would get up early, go to the woods, saw the log, for the tree to come down, and it was carried by a hooker to a truck, hauled to the mill, and cut to be hauled again, either by the train or by another truck. So I've known my father to leave home before the sunrise and come back at sunset. But um, the women in Rosewood, such as my Aunt Liza, who worked for the Pillsbury family, uh, my cousin, uh, well, my aunt uh, Sarah, who worked for uh, the, um, and, I, and I've been rushing, so I'm uh, sort of lost for names right now, but uh, she worked for Fanny Taylor and her husband. So they are the ones that were in Rosewood at that home when 
the massacre began. But along with Philomena, Dr. My cousin, and my cousin Arnett Turnagoin, better known as A.T. So those were the people who were at Fanny Taylor's home at that time. So they were workers in uh, some of the white people homes in and around Rosewood, Sumner, um, and the other small communities. They, the men were great fishermen. So I think uh, once they found out that they could catch enough fish to feed the village, they knew they had something good going. So many of us uh, were fed because uh, the fields that they planted and the crops that grew, the fruits of the tree, grinding the cane to make the syrup, and um, that made monies or brought it generated funding to help support the families. Um, we were brought up as church-going people. Everybody feared God. And you had to go to church. There was no if, and, but, so maybe. So there was our religious training. family um, got along and saw after each other. The Goins are cousins and they owned a Turpentine Times still and the houses that the families lived on. So um, I guess you could call it a quarters. Some people say neighborhoods, but I remember them being called quarters. And it was because of the closeness of the families. Um, Everybody knowing everybody, so you didn't get by with doing too many things wrong. Um, my Aunt Ruth Bradley Davis um, was the person that gave me the courage and uh, the push and the okay to talk about Rosewood. When we would get together as a family, the Bradleys would always be openly spoken about Rosewood. I grew up with my grandfather, John Wesley, and um, he and the nine siblings that he had, and I can name them each, but they're scattered all over. And uh, that's how I know that Mrs. Hall is in Hilliard, Florida, because that's the first place that uh, my Uncle Hoyt Bradley went after he was able to get on that train with the Bryce brothers, so, and they took him to safety there. He lived um, there for years and passed away. So he was the husband of um, Dosha Hall, the oldest of the nine children of Mary and Backless Hall, who ran the sugar mill and a grocery store. He was also a minister in Rosewood. The good thing about talking about Rosewood, we were able to get a bill passed and know that those family members such as A.T. Goins, Lee Ruth Bradley Davis, Minnie Lee Langley, Mary Hall Daniels, Willie Evans, A.T. Goins, uh, Mr. Wilson Hall, 
Dorothy Hosey, and Marjorie Hall will never be forgotten. Those are people that live real close and dear to me. You can imagine having a child at the age of eight, eight years old saying, we fled in the night with nothing on but our night clothes because we were afraid of being killed by, um, they used the word by the mob, the white folks were searching out. To have my cousin Willie Evans um, go blind and we sit and talk and he says, they took my early childhood and everything that I had. And I wonder, what did he see without really seeing anything other than what he felt in his heart just to know that the Lord saved him, that he could pass that information on to each of us that were left alive. Cousin A.T. was the father of Dr. Annette Gorn Shakir. Um, she taught women's education at Bethune-Cookman College. She and her husband, Adib, were also, uh, he was president of the Tougaloo Mississippi College, and to watch that young lady, the way that she carried herself, and have her say, being an only child, that she never knew the anguish that befell her father until she was grown, and to know that he shined shoes to put her through college to earn her PhD. Those are the things that we need to get out in the open. Tell the truth that we know. Don't have our children sitting around wondering, who am I? Who do I belong to? Where am I going? What am I going to do? Be open. Talk to your children as my parents did me. They let me know that I am somebody, whether it's who you want me to be, or you, or you. But I am somebody. I must always know who I belong to. And as I stand here today and know the struggle, the work, the property, that my family owned the things that they did even as I work now to help other people. It makes my heart glad. All those things take me back to my family. What if John Wright had not been there when he beckoned John Wesley to bring his children, the little ones, over to the house and he and the boys must hit the woods? I probably wouldn't be here today, but the Lord saw fit that the evil that was done against the people in Rosewood who had no malice, no hate, no reason to cause chaos were saved. Those that were lost, yes, we still grieve. I fear hurt in my heart for people such as Miss Lizzie Screen, her son Johnny, uh, and a few others that I learned to know by being in 
Otter Creek, Florida is where I was born, in case you want to know. <laughs> um, so I, that's just, uh, I could run to Rosewood in about 10 minutes. So I know about the berries. I know the back roads. I know how to get to where I need to be, and I've been going to that home all my life with Ms. Uh, Fudiskagen. She is a wonderful person with open arms. And those are the things that my grandfather, my aunts, my cousins, and all those that are no longer here brought up in me. If you are sincere, show yourself friendly, you will always have one. you to know that Rosewood is alive. It is, it was, and it will be forever be. Thank you. heard from Janie Bradley Blake. Blake was once the leader of the Rosewood Heritage Foundation. Her son Gregory Black is now the director of the foundation. We heard from him in episode 10 of this season. You heard Janie talk about her family members when they lived in Rosewood, including her aunt, Sarah Carrier, who we've spoken of often during this podcast. Sarah worked for Fanny Taylor, the woman who accused an unknown Black man of assaulting her, an accusation that set the wheels of the Rosewood massacre in motion. We have heard a number of accounts of the horror Rosewood residents endured during and after the Rosewood Massacre. I thought it would be appropriate to end this season with an account of what life was like in Rosewood before the massacre. Some of the joys, the fond memories, the hard work of the people there. A reminder of how hard they had to work to build and acquire what they did for their families and community. And finally, what community meant to the people of Rosewood. As Janie Bradley Blake said, Rosewood lives on. And we must remember, it was so much more than the site of a tragic massacre. It's a place where people lived. People, their dreams, and most of who and what they loved in life lived as well. Well, we've come to the end of another season of Dreams of Black Wall Street. I'd like to highlight something, though, that I think is important to acknowledge about this work. When discussing history for informational purposes, particularly subjects of a more serious nature, there's a danger of being so matter-of-fact that one risks inadvertently mitigating the magnitude of the circumstances and the toll it took on all involved. I understand how that happens. I'm probably someone who does this to a certain extent. As a journalist, especially one who covers current events, while I'm working, I have to try and turn off my emotional triggers in order to focus on delivering accurate and unbiased news and information. You want your work to be interpreted through a neutral lens rather than the lens of your personal lived and emotional experiences. On the other hand, you don't want to come across as robotic and void of feelings in an attempt to keep that neutral lens clear. If you do that, you run the risk of coming across as unrelatable and stoic. It is possible to convey the nature of a situation in a way that reflects an appropriate and measured temperament that is tailored to the circumstances. That temperament will allow you to toe this very thin line of emotional appropriateness and professional expectations. Discussing history is a bit different than journalism, in my opinion, particularly journalism that focuses on current events. 
While current events-oriented journalism can offer great insights into specific issues, the circumstances surrounding those issues are current and still developing. Therefore, it's hard to make an assessment about an outcome that hasn't happened. This is why you'll hear a lot of people use the phrase, history will be the judge. Discussing history, on the other hand, allows you to analyze the outcome from various perspectives, moral, philosophical, political, and draw a conclusion about that event based on that outcome. This doesn't have to be history from the distant past. History from a month or a year ago can also have fixed outcomes. My goal in sharing this history with listeners is to make this obscured, in some cases forgotten part of our past, as widely available to everyone who wants to understand it as possible. The knowledge of history does not belong to any one person. Therefore, people should not be deprived of it, especially when that history has very much shaped a good deal of who many of us are and what we experience today. I have another goal in sharing this history, which can be summed up in the old adage, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That quote is from Winston Churchill, though other historical figures are quoted as saying different variations of the same idea. The point being, lessons gleaned from history may not always prevent unfavorable circumstances, but they can provide insights and perspectives that have been informed by the past, used to illuminate realities of the present, and can be employed to make better decisions in the future. The history discussed on this podcast can be categorized as Black history. However, it is not a concentration found in general studies of most public school curriculum. I want that to change. I want Black history to be as mainstream as what educational institutions deem mandatory learning. I want people to understand the full extent of the Black experience in America, if for nothing else, so people can stop wondering how we came to live in a society where Black life is just not valued the same as other lives. This is the outcome of hundreds of years of devaluing Black life. It is not a political, philosophical, or partisan assessment. If you've learned nothing else from this podcast, I hope you've come to understand that it is simply the truth. I want the same for Asian American history, or Asian history, Native American history, or Native history, Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, and Chicano history, and so many more. I want to amplify the lived experiences of others in our country who also feel like their history and subsequently their lives are not valued as much as others. Black history just happens to be my cake. It's what I invest quite a bit of my energy in. And as a result, I've expanded my knowledge in African-American history. And I want to share that knowledge with others. I've been studying it since before college. I will not date myself, but it's been a while. <laughs> and yet there is so much more about my history, about African-American and African history for me to learn. I'm a lifelong student, not just of Black history, of all history. We'll never know all there is to know about the past, but having an open mind and understanding as much as we can can help to bridge the divides that have, for so long, caused human beings to learn to live separately rather than harmoniously. In studying the systemic devaluing of Black life, it is important to understand how Black life is also, and often, devalued even after death. Like victims of similar racially motivated or violent atrocities, the victims of the Rosewood Massacre never had the proper burial that is custom in Black communities. This unfortunately was not uncommon during the era of the Jim Crow South. Dr. Marvin Dunn is a psychologist and historian with a wealth of knowledge about the Black experience in Florida. Recently, he has focused much of his energy on trying to discover where Rosewood victims are buried and how to give them the burial they deserve.
My name is Dr. Marvin Dunn. I am a retired professor of psychology from Florida International University in Miami. I'm currently uh, working on various research projects dealing with anti-Black violence in Florida. That's my focus at this time. Okay, but you've got a pretty extensive history as a historian as well, isn't that correct? Yes, I've written a number of books on Black history in Florida. I also wrote the first comprehensive book on the history of Blacks in Miami, Florida. So yes, I've done work other than my focus on anti-Black violence in Florida. If you don't mind me asking, how does your background in psychology relate to your interest in Black history, especially in Florida? Well, my interest in psychology is in an area called community psychology. It's a relatively new area of psychology. And in our field, we focus on ills in the community, not necessarily ills within the individual patient. So a community that has had a race riot or a massacre is a sick community. Even in retrospect, things that need to be diagnosed and analyzed and understood in order to prevent the same sort of things from happening. So I've always been a psychologist who worked outside of the office and in the field. And in that arena, I've been led to first the research on the history of Blacks in Miami, starting with the 1980 riot in Miami, the first book, and then subsequent books since that time. I'm really curious because you've done so much research in the area of anti-Black violence and psychology. What does your psychology background tell you about the sort of pathology of anti-Black violence? Well, it's the same thing to psychology all over the South. It's one thing to take a person out and lynch him or her because of some perceived injustice that you feel you need to get your friends and, and right the injustice. It's one thing to do that. That's revenge. That's the human emotion that we understand. But why castrate a man? Why do what they did to Claude Neal in Mariana, Florida, 1934? They hung this man. Before they did, they made him consume his own genitals. Why do that? In all the research I've done on lynchings and anti-black violence in Florida, and mind you, a few white men have been lynched in Florida. Not many, but a few, you know, hog stealing and um, some such thing. But there was not a single case that I found on the record where a white victim of lynching was castrated. That is a punishment that is reserved for black men and boys. And it is psychologically indicative of the perversion of lynching violence as a sexual phenomenon. If they're going to cut a man like that because of anger, then why not do it to white men as well? A lot of it gets to the psychology of sexual jealousy on the part of some white men, so that the opportunity to violate and mutilate a black man or boy delivers a certain amount of sexual pleasure. And so, as a psychologist, I see this for what it is. Perverted sexuality turned loose on an innocent victim who was always a black male. Not just in Florida, the same thing all over the South. And North and West. We could see the same sort of attack, uh, sexual attack on Black male victims. It's that time. 
How did you become involved or interested in the field of Rosewood? Was it just happenstance because you were studying Black history in Florida? Well, I heard about it over the years. I read an article from the Tampa Bay Times about what had happened in Rosewood. And in 1997, I was in Gainesville on a conference and knew that Rosewood was just 40 or so miles away to the west. And I just drove over. It was free and it was a sort of rainy uh, afternoon, getting dark. And I drove over the 40 miles and found the road you turn off of the highway to go down into what used to be the heart of Rosewood. And I did that that afternoon. And it was very strange walking through those woods. I found the old railroad track. The rails are gone, but the track still runs true through the woods like a green tunnel. So that day I walked along this tunnel uh, through the woods very, very much alone. And I stumbled upon the graveyard, uh, the, the Rosewood graveyard. And since that time, I've been going back to Rosewood and eventually started doing research on Rosewood. About 15 years ago, I purchased five acres of land in Rosewood, becoming the first Black person to buy land in Rosewood since 1923. So I'm there often. I've, I have good neighbors who have helped me by letting me onto their properties to look for artifacts and to get their view of what happened in Rosewood. And I've also had some folks who just as well not have me in town and have made that known to me as well. So that's really interesting. I was under the impression that there was another Black family that tried to live there. Yeah, they were there for a very short period of time. I think it was a retired officer, public official, and they moved to O'Kella. That's right. They were there for a very short time, less than a year, I think. I don't know why they moved, but if you're a Black person living in Rosewood, you are very much alone. There are very few Black people in that area of Levy County. And in Rosewood proper, you don't see Black people. There are none there. So what made you buy property there? I wanted to save a piece of Rosewood for history. The Rosewood now, the properties are all five-acre properties. You can't buy anything smaller than five acres. And it's a very heavily wooded area. Now kind of a bedroom community for Cedar Key, which is nine miles away on the Gulf of Mexico. So white people are buying these five-acre lots and putting up very, very nice homes out there. And I wanted to take five acres of it and save it for history. The property that I have is roughly where the old railroad depot was, from which people were rescued. And the uh, railroad track runs, as I said, the rails are gone, but the railroad bed itself runs through my property for about uh, 300 yards. I I wanted people to be able to come to Rosewood and walk on that ground and not be trespassing. So I have no intention to have it be anything other than uh, historic land that's open to the public. And I hope from now on we'll have it be a place where people can come and walk on that ground. It's the only place in Rosewood you can do that now. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's, all, it's all private property. Huh. You know, there's no public property in Rosewood. Wow. So interestingly enough, you've been researching Rosewood for a while now. You have been involved in various projects beside your purchase of this property in Rosewood. Can you just briefly explain what other projects you've been involved in, including your latest and current efforts to unearth possible graves of Rosewood victims? The record now says, based upon archaeologists who who have said so, the official view today is that the six victims, six of the Black victims, there may have been more, but the six victims that we know of, the current view is that they are buried in the Rosewood Cemetery. 
which is a very small cemetery. I found it, as I told you, way back in 97. But that doesn't make sense to me that they would be buried in that cemetery because I found a photograph six months ago that showed the Black victims being buried. And the photograph said that they were being buried in Sumner, two miles from Rosewood, where most of the white folks came who attacked Rosewood. This photograph said and showed three graves and said there are two victims, two Black victims being buried in each grave. And around these graves were about 20, 25 white people. No Black people, all white people in their Sunday best. Some of them with babes in arms. Some wondering, wait a minute, why are these white people in Rosewood at the burial of these Black folks? Now, when white people in Cedar Key and in Lieber County thought that armed Blacks were shooting any white person in sight, it didn't make sense to me that these white people, babes in arms and the slender best, would go to Rosewood to witness the burial of the six Black victims. Those victims were buried in the back of the white cemetery in Sumner. The white cemetery in Sumner is called Shiloh Cemetery. It's about two and a half miles from Rosewood. And that is where one of the white victims is buried. A man named Polly Wilkerson is buried in that shallow cemetery. I've been going to his grave over the years. So is John W. Wright and his wife, the white man who protected black people, who let women and children hide in his house at night, who helped bring the train in to rescue people. He's buried in shallow. So I've been going out there for years, but I never went to the back of the cemetery. And when I saw that photograph saying Black victims being buried in Sumner, and I saw newspaper articles saying the Black victims are being buried in Sumner. So where in Sumner? Now, having been born in Florida a long time ago, I remember that Black cemeteries were usually behind the white cemeteries. That's very traditional in the South. That's where the Black folks are buried. So behind the shallow cemetery is a heavily wooded area. And I'm thinking, well, if these folks are buried in Sumner, probably in this white cemetery where Polly Wilkerson was buried, the photograph I saw was a photograph of people being at that cemetery that Sunday to witness Polly Wilkerson's burial in the front part of that cemetery. Those folks simply walked back to the back of the cemetery with these three graves open, and these six victims had been buried. That's why these folks, they're not in Rosewood. They're in Sumner. I managed to go out there uh, on, on my own, January 8th. I just went back there on my own. The Miami Herald went with me, and I found graves. I found unmistakable human graves. Man. They were grown, overgrown and all of that. But not only graves, but I also found two mounds, very large mounds. There's supposed to be a mass grave in Rosewood. I don't know this to be true. I've never really ascribed to that view that there's a mass grave. But there may be. And if there is a mass grave in Rosewood, then it would likely be behind that shallow cemetery where the other graves are that I saw. So I think the shallow cemetery, the rear section, has been used to bury black people since slavery. And that's where these victims of this event are now buried. So what I did, once I found graves back there, I went to the Levy County clerk's office, left a note saying, I believe that there's an abandoned African-American cemetery behind shallow I think y'all should take a look at that. I went back to Miami. They sent me a note saying uh, the police would like me to come and show them what I found, leave the county sheriff's office. So I drive back to Rosewood, seven hours there and back, and the Levy County Sheriff's Office sent two officers out there to meet with me, and I showed them the mounds, and I showed them the graves. And strangely, that was a third mound that they uncovered. 
They didn't tell me they'd done that. They, you know, while I was in Miami, they went out there and they found the third mound. So about, I don't know, several days later, the Levy County state attorney advised me that because there were no human remains visible and because the cemetery is, is located on private property, there's nothing the county can do. They said they would help me perhaps get some volunteers to come in with proper credentials to do it, but there's nothing the county could do. They're done with it. So I went to the State Archaeology Bureau and asked for help from them. They wrote back saying this is on private property. Without the permission of the property owners, that's nothing the state can do since there are no visible human remains. Sorry, Dr. Dunn, but uh, that's it. So I was able to get a very known, well-known archaeologist who has been doing this work for a long time to agree to provide his service free to the Shiloh Cemetery Board. And the cemetery board agreed to meet with me at Shiloh. So again, I drove a third time up to Rosewood. They said that I could show them what I found in the cemetery. So I drove back up and uh, met them that morning as we had agreed. And they said, you can't enter the cemetery. I said, but you said I could come up and you were going to let me show you what I found. And they said, we looked and there's nothing back there to be seen. I said, well, Mr. Dana Sinclair is willing to look at what's back there and charge you guys nothing. You could be here in a matter of days. No, thank you. There's nothing to see. So that encounter lasted 10 minutes. And I got in my car and drove back to Miami. So where do things stand now? I guess it's a stone wall. There's nothing I can do. I told these people, I give you my word. I will not trespass on your property again. Thank you very much. I'm going home. And that's where it now stands. I've seen this theme of unmarked graves of either slaves or Black people who died in unfortunate circumstances. You know, researching Tulsa, researching Rosewood and other places, there's just this theme of, you know, the bodies of these people. In one sense, you know, they're treated as disposable. They don't get the same respect as other people when it comes to their burial. You know, burying anybody in many, many cultures is a very sacred sort of experience. And so this is just not something that these people were afforded, often slaves or Black people who were killed, victims of anti-Black violence, so on and so forth. And so it just strikes me because it just sounds so unsettled, you know, like there's so much unsettled history. Well, it, it is unsettled. And part of the reason is that, you know, at one time in this country, in a lot of states, you could bury people in your backyard. Virginia, for example, is the state where they had very liberal burial policies, so practices. So people have been able to bury people quite indiscriminately in, in, in the past. Another problem, though, with Black cemeteries is that unless they are on the property of a Black church that survives, therefore there's a caretaker of the cemetery, many times the Black cemetery is just sort of put on white people's property where they allow Black folks to be buried. So over time, when the white folks want their land back, I don't want to have it be available, then it just becomes an overgrown, uncared for cemetery on private property. And therefore, the access of family members to those graveyards is very, very limited. What happened in Rosewood was that the property owner of the Rosewood Cemetery allowed 
people who claim to be descendants of Rosewood to come and visit that cemetery from time to time. But the law requires that. The law requires that if you have private property and there, uh, there's a cemetery on your property, you cannot restrict people who can describe and define themselves as descendants from having access to the graves. So in Rosewood, this man has allowed that over the years. Not great free access, but he has allowed some access to the graveyard. The problem is the people who think that they're going out there seeing where Sarah Carey is buried and where Sylvester Carey is supposed to be buried and the rest of them, they're going to the wrong place. You need to be able to go where you know your people are buried. Not where some white academician says, I think they're buried in Rosewood, when it makes absolutely no sense that those folks would be buried in Rosewood under those circumstances. The Rosewood Cemetery, that little tiny cemetery, is within rifle shot of the carrier house, where these 25 armed black men were supposed to be holed up, shooting any white person in sight. So you think white folks who at that time were taken to the Gulf of Mexico in boats to protect themselves because they thought, erroneously, that blacks were in riot in Rosewood. So the whole notion that these white people in that photograph were standing around graves in Rosewood is ludicrous. My sense now, though, is uh, we may never know where these people are, as long as that private cemetery board says you can't come onto our property. That's the dilemma. You pointed it right correctly. That's the dilemma around the country, around the South in particular, where access to Black cemeteries has been exceedingly difficult. And thus, those Black people, they never get the respect that is usually paid to folks who pass away, whether it's in a violent manner or not. They just don't have that respect. Well, that, that's the most violent, beyond being actually killed, kind of what, injustice. You, As a matter of being a human being, you are justified in wanting people to know where you're buried. And when they don't know, particularly when they're told you someplace that you're not, that's an injustice into eternity. So, People are trying to solve these problems and resolve these issues in communities where there is resistance, such as what we're seeing in Sumner, very limited options. Unless the private owner says, okay, y'all can come in, you're left with trespassing. And then even so. And that is one of the consequences of dispossession. When you've been dispossessed of your land and your property, you don't have rights to it anymore. People can come and take it over. Anybody can do with whatever they want with your, your dead relatives, and there's nothing you can do. Right. Just because Mr. John said, y'all can bury people out there in the back 40. You start doing that. 80 years later, someone wants to put a drugstore, a supermarket back there. So there goes the graveyard. Right. Plus, people moved away. See, a lot of Black people moved out of the South. They moved away from their hometowns and therefore lost contact with their relatives and where they were buried. Uh, so generationally, there has been such a gap between Black folks who used to live in the South whose ancestors are buried in the South and folks who moved, families that have moved west and north and east long ago. So why do you think all of this is important, right? Like you've been doing this for a long time there are a lot of people who've been doing what you've been doing for a long time, and sometimes to no avail, but you still keep trying. Why? Well, you know, in, in the case of Rosewood, even though I have not been able to get professional uh, assessment of what's going on back there, 
at least I took this all the way up to the Florida Department of, of Historic Preservation, the director, as high as you can go short of getting into the governor's office. I took this matter in very strong language in a series of, of emails and letters to these people, making it clear that the historical record is wrong. So even though I have not been successful, at least now there is a question on the historical record that can either be ignored or hopefully taken up by another researcher in the future who will move this forward. Or maybe even the state itself recognize, given the importance historically of Rosewood, that some state action should be taken to have access to that property being granted under a state court order. But they lost something more important than the land, their opportunities to earn a living. They lost their history. They lost their memories. They lost a part of their, their soul. You're told that you got to leave the place where you were born, where your parents were born, and your grandparents were born, and go back at threat of your life. That's the great loss. And now to not know really where the folks who were killed truly are buried, so that mystery is floating out there somewhere, uh, a great deal was lost other than the land and the jobs. to this season of the podcast, last season, or both, you'll notice that I make a concerted effort not to just focus on the tragic situations in some of the Black communities we discuss. On the contrary, I try to present a holistic view of life before these communities existed, during their existence, and after these communities became the site of historic events, which we often discuss on this podcast. These historic events are so impactful that they tend to influence the trajectory of history. Though that trajectory often turns out to be disadvantageous for Black people, that doesn't mean said trajectory is fixed. A. Donahue Baker is someone who has worked hard to change the economic trajectory of not only his life, despite his past, but that of his community by empowering himself and others with the tools to do just that. I'm A. Donahue Baker. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Money Avenue, which really is a fintech bank. It's a wealth building platform that allows people to really build wealth, gives them a clear pathway to build wealth. So that's it. That is not it. You do a lot more than that. You better, <laughs> you better state your whole resume. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. How about that? So I, I am a CPA. I also have an angel syndicate fund, so I'm an angel investor, that we also invest in companies, startups, particularly helping them get from pre-seed all the way up to Series A. So that's pretty much my immediate direction. In addition to that, I started as a CPA, but I started in real estate. So I still have a, a really, what I feel is the best wealth creation vehicle 
in history, and that's land and real estate. I have a portfolio of over 500 units, and primarily I, I just do one deal a year, right? So it's, it's not really a hobby, but it's something that I enjoy doing is, is just purchasing income-producing assets, and that's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> and you also teach, correct? Yes, I'm also a professor at Morehouse. So I teach a class it's called uh, Entrepreneurship and Black Wealth. Very relevant to our discussion today. So at what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to become an entrepreneur and you wanted to focus on wealth creation and why? One of the key things I realized just growing up in affordable housing was that a lot of poverty existed because they were not a lack of opportunities, but more of a lack of creativity. So I wanted to constantly be in a position where I would create constantly be in a position that I could pull myself out of poverty because a lot of my peers and a lot of the people that at that particular time I grew up and was raised around, they, they were in the same situation. And, and I realized a couple of patterns took place. Number one, found out that the average of the closest five people that you hang around with. And when I hung around friends that got in trouble, you know what happened to me? I got into a lot of trouble. So I, I picked that up pretty early and I started to hang around a different group of friends and my grades started to get better. I got some you know, opportunities to go on to, to college. I went to Georgetown University, you know, and then my circle of friends got better. Until this day, those are like my best friends in the world, my college buddies. And it's been some time, but, you know, we still keep in touch. We still engage, even if it's just a text. And then, you know, they're titans of industry for the most part. Like I was really blessed to be around people in all different sectors, all geographic locations for the most part in this country. There's always somebody that I know. So I would say that, you know, that's that's what I learned. And that motivated me to really keep pushing, just watching my friends do similar things. Now, do you still produce music? I don't produce music anymore, but mainly because I had a, a label deal really on Sony Music. It was dropped and it just devastated me. And I decided that I needed to get a more consistent source of income because the music money was so up and down. I just decided that is not where I want to build a career anymore. So even though vicariously, I still have a lot of friends in the music industry. One of my partners actually in my bank is Vin Rock, who is one third of the world famous group Naughty by Nature. But you did have some success. Yes, yes. Well, my biggest artist was on Music Soul Child. So I was nominated for a Grammy on Just Listen album. Also at Georgetown, I discovered A. Marie. I had A. Marie signed for two, almost three years. I worked exclusively with her. So yeah, and then I've done a number of other records here and there. So definitely some success in the music business. Can I just say, and this is uh-huh. totally unrelated to our topic today, <laughs> I love Amory. And if there's yeah. anybody I wanted to have an amazing comeback, it is her. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to her songs over and over and over again. And to this day, they are timeless. Like they are right. not songs that you can identify based on the decade in which they were made. Please bring her back. I don't know yeah. what you have to do. Call She's her, an amazing talent. She's her, in uh, 
Her, bring her back. <laughs> no, I agree. So I digress. <laughs> Thank you for letting me indulge. So back to our topic at hand. What is your understanding of prosperity? And so we're talking about this today, obviously, because we're using Rosewood, which we focused on all season, right? Mm-hmm. Not only as a lens into the Black experience, particularly in Florida during the early part of the 20th century, but it's also a lens into this struggle, like centuries long struggle Black people in America have had to build wealth and really to gain a foothold, right? And create some sort of environment for their family that had longevity. And, you know, this is the whole idea of full citizenship. What does it mean to have full citizenship, right? It's not just about voting because that's part of it, but your vote also has so much to do with the circumstances in your community, policy that's created, policy that can dictate how much money you make, how much land you can buy, you know? And so in the context of all of that, what is your understanding of prosperity? Well, to me, it's multifaceted. To me, you have to have the economic prosperity to really make an impact, to make a difference. So I would focus on, as a people, we need to make sure that we have a a way to pass wealth on to our children. That's really one of the key things that I think is super, super relevant. So the way that I've structured it in my family is really making generational wealth a topic of discussion at the forefront that we plan, not only plan for it, but we also do things step by step every single year to make sure that wealth is transferred on. So the example that I give a lot is in Newark, New Jersey, I purchased a six-unit apartment building, put that apartment building in the trust of my son, and like as he's the beneficiary. So right now he's three years old, but I did it when he was two, and basically that trust is going to do two things for him. It's going to allow him when he turns eighteen. It's going to fully pay for his college education. That's number one. But the other thing is, you know, six-unit apartment building rents are going up by the time. You know, he's 18. He's going to be put in this position where he's going to have income coming in every single month consistently from that apartment building. And that to me is is the gift of generational wealth because he's not forced to be in a position where he has to uh, take a job that is outside of his God-given talents and passions. It's something that is very intentional, very deliberate, and has to be planned. And it can be done. Something as simple as just that, just buying some real estate and putting it in a trust and then passing, make sure that that's passed on to the next generation. How lucky he is to have a dad like you who is so forward thinking. I think a lot of kids you know, can appreciate <laughs> what you've done for him. A lot of adults as well. You know, in this podcast, we discuss the systemic destruction and destabilization of Black communities particularly over the last 150 year or so period at great length. And one of the goals of this podcast is really to make that information easily accessible to anybody who's interested in learning about it. And so as an expert in real estate, 
wealth creation, financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and other related areas. How do you think having an understanding of this history can guide people and particularly people in Black communities towards creating both long-term prosperity in their families, as you just mentioned, and more financial independence in their communities? Great question. So one of the things and the reasons why I decided to start a, a fintech bank was for that same reason, that there was a lack of opportunities, a lack of access to capital. And if you're looking to build wealth, if you're looking to do anything, anything, no matter what field or what industry it is, you need capital. You need money to scale, right? Especially with technology. It's cheaper now that we have technology, but you still need to invest some money. And if you don't have the money, your competitors have access to that capital. They're going to eventually force you out of the market. You're not going to be able to effectively compete. So we know the history that our Black community has been through from redlining to just being denied basic loans. Even to this day, actually, you know, a lot of the way that the banks have been apportioning loans is they base it on zip code and it's still illegal, but they'll say, well, if you need a loan and you live in this zip code, chances are this zip code is predominantly this ethnic makeup and we're going to charge you a different rate or maybe get declined straight out, right? So it's not as overt in your face as it once was in this country. So it's important to understand that these institutions, right, have not changed a lot. Now, it's not politically correct to blatantly discriminate, but how are these institutions that have been involved in slavery, have been involved in discrimination? I mean, we know what happened. J.P. Morgan Chase, which is a bank that's still around today, you know, their history can be traced back to the slave trade, right? And also taking collateral, taking slaves as collateral. And I just think that those same institutions, we have to know the history. And it's really, really important because when you understand the history, if you understand the things that they've done, we can make better decisions going forward. You know, So that's why I think it's really, really important that we have to understand our past, understand how we were excluded so that it doesn't happen again. Well said, well said. In an effort to repair so much of the financial and emotional and psychological damage that has been done to communities of color with regards to their relationship to wealth creation and prosperity, which have been heavily influenced by the historic systemic destruction of these communities, what are some immediate and long-term steps community members in these areas can take to change the downward economic trajectory so many of them are facing? And what are some immediate and long-term steps leaders in these communities can take as well? I think the most important thing is understanding the value of your dollar, right? We always talk about the $1.2 trillion that we spend annually in the Black community and how long it stays in the Black community, right? We need to make a concerted effort to look for Black entrepreneurs and make sure that we patronize their business. I think that's so important. What that does is twofold. We patronize the Black entrepreneur, and if they do the same, they're able to patronize other Black businesses. And it's this chain-linked effect that really cascades throughout our community. And that is one of the principal ways in which we can make uh, tremendous impact. The other way that I think is really important, and we touched on it 
earlier about the generational wealth. And the reason for the wealth gap, I think, is really because we need ownership. We need ownership of businesses. We need ownership of real estate. And that's really important. Typically, it works like this. The typical family has a home. And you know, let's say it's a two-parent household, average three kids. That mother and father, when they pass, they usually will the real estate, the house to their children, which is great, right? Because there's some generational wealth passed. There's some head start there. But the kids are in a, in a position where they're like, well, we got this one house. Prices have probably gone up. You know, I don't want to live there. We can't all live there together. So what happens is they, they end up selling the house, right? They end up selling their generational wealth. And chances are, and this is probably our, our generation is maybe the first, that the children don't actually do better than the parents, right? It's harder for, in this day and age, with prices going as high as they are, for a young adult to leave their home and go out and purchase a home. So what that does is it stops chain. It breaks the cycle, right? And I think that we need to be more cognizant of that. We need to understand that, you know, you have to put yourself, even, even as a parent, you have to put your child in a position where, you know, they're able to take these teachings, take these lessons and pass it on to their children. And that's how I think we're going to be able to eventually get through uh, or, or really close the wealth gap. You know, so that's just my take on it. It's not going to happen overnight. It's something that's going to be multi-generational. You know, I love all of the points you made, but especially the point about the children of parents who've been able to amass real estate selling it because of different financial reasons. In fact, one of the communities we focused on this season was Eatonville, Florida, which is one of the first all black municipalities in the U.S. And they talk about sort of how it's changed over the years and a lot of kids of those parents who bought homes have sold and moved on. And then when you think about the structure of the community as well, and you think about, you know, the predatory lending that you talked about or the discrimination with regards to lending that you talked about, when you have, you know, chaotic, unfortunate emergency circumstances like this pandemic that we're in, which has this trickle-down effect of dragging the economy down with us, (laughs) you know, and you look at communities like, really what community is not suffering, right? There's like a very small number of communities that aren't suffering. But when you look at communities of color, which are already many of them, not all, but many of them disadvantaged, and you see people not only selling homes, but you see businesses closing up, you're looking at now the value of that community, the property value of that community is dropping. And then you have increased blight. And with increased blight, who's going to want to start a business, right? And then you have, you know, safety issues as the community sort of falls into ruin and on and on and on. And so all of these things are so important. And, and I just mentioned that because what I also think Black communities in particular don't focus on enough is community. Mm, We mm -hmm. don't think of our environment, right, in this communal sense. And Mm -hmm. if you look at other cultures, 
I'll just say, you know, I used to live in South Africa. So South Africa, for mm-hmm. example, you know, people talk about villages. Well, I didn't live in a village, but the mentality was such that mm-hmm. everybody that you were around, or I should say your friends, the people who you gravitated towards, you all took care of each other. You all right. made dinner for each other. One person would mm-hmm. cook one night, another cook another night. You made sure each other were okay. I, I didn't quite understand what it meant to have real community until mm-hmm. that experience. And that is something that I see lacking to a great degree. What do you think? No, I agree 100%. I think mainly because, you know, I, I did a, a YouTube video on the city of Newark, New Jersey, and what was really wrong with it. And, you know, the, if you look at all the ethnic groups that came into Newark, in the past and then has since left what's happening right now with that community is even harlem right if you you, there was a tremendous amount of talent and and brain trust in that community and then all of a sudden when the discrimination kind of lessened and the best the brightest in those communities they leave and they move into you know could be white communities or other communities right those communities suffer because you have the best, the, the smartest leaving the community and they're not coming back, pouring into the community. The community goes down. It's kind of like the, the race to the bottom because that's when you really have to blight the crime and, you know, everything that that uh, goes along with that. You know, I'm looking at that the city of Newark and some interesting things have happened really since COVID. One of the things, and, and I own a lot of property in Newark, but one of the things that I, that I was able to discover is at the beginning of COVID, we all thought that the prices of land or of you know buildings would just drop, right? Because people were losing their job. There would be a, a bunch of foreclosures. But the moratorium, which the banks are not foreclosing, and in addition, they're not even putting new properties on the market, is causing the prices to rise. So we're seeing drastic price increases going on in these communities, which you know, also puts the home ownership dream even further out of reach in, in communities that you would think that it would be more accessible, right? So we, we see that effect happening. And in addition to that, we're creating, I think, a whole generation of renters, which, you know, I think that's a big, big problem. You know, we, we used to aspire on the community to own your home, at least own the home that you live in. Some somewhere that that's lost, like, you know, young people are just comfortable with renting. And, you know, I've even seen some groups on the Internet saying it's better to rent than to own. It's better to rent to own. Like, you know, like I was on Clubhouse and somebody, some financial guy or whatever was saying that it's just smarter to rent nowadays because it's cheaper. And this is kind of how I broke it down with him. A thousand dollars of rent, you know, it's it's nothing. Right. And thousand dollars is not typical rent income in, in a in a decent spot, right? But let's just say you have you spend a thousand dollars in rent, that's twelve thousand. You know, you multiply that by five years, right? You put yourself in a position where you could have owned something. Now, if you owned a home, that same thousand dollars, right? And you could in some places you could own for a thousand dollars, but a thousand dollars a month uh, put up in a home five years down the road is going to give you some equity because we know that real estate increases on average 3% every year. 
In addition to that, you're allotted a certain number of benefits. You're able to take depreciation. You're able to also get tax write-offs. If it's a mortgage, you can write off your interest. You can write off expenses if you have repairs on your home. There's lots of different benefits that are available exclusively to real estate owners. And that is what I think is missing in that argument. People don't understand that because depreciation is not real. It's not something you can touch. It's not tangible, but it's a real expense. You can write that depreciation off against W-2 income. That being said, I just think that there's a world of financial literacy that our young people need to kind of have access to. And that's really what I talk about as a professor. And when I, when I talk to young people, I just try to show them the value in owning. And it's really a long-term play. It's an investment in your future. Yeah, it is. And I'm so glad you mentioned it. Finally, what should community members and especially those in these black communities that we've been discussing so much be demanding of their elected officials and government officials in general in order to steer the economic trajectory of these communities into a more financially advantageous direction than that which has existed for decades? And I ask that in the context of, again, this theme of the systemic destabilization and destruction of Black communities that we've seen. Now we're just seeing it in different forms, different iterations, but Mm -hmm. it continues to happen. Absolutely. So one of the things I've discovered, I would say, is the force of business and the value of your dollar and um, I think the the entrepreneur is at the center of that. Even with our business, we have a, a full-fledged digital bank. And with that bank, we're able to do things that other entities are not, right? We're able to make sure that entrepreneurs have access to capital. We make sure that we have the spirit of business, right? One of the things that we do is we give $50,000 to every LLC that has a viable business that they can prove the concept to, right? And we do that in such a way that it's like, 50,000 should be enough to prove if your business concept works. And then if it does, we'll you know, give you access to more capital. But that's what politicians, that's what our government needs to do more of. And the fact that there's not enough programs in our community that, that do that, I just think that you know, we, government has to be a force for good. And until we're able to leverage government, and put it in a position where it's working for us instead of just taxing us. And, you know, we're expecting a handout on a government program. And then when they cut that program, it's gone for good just because a new administration comes in. You know, it, it, it's this roller coaster ride that is not sustaining. Right. So I just to, to be more direct with your question, I think that it's very important that we have programs that lift people into entrepreneurship, make them able to sustain. They need a pathway to a more sustainable way to earn their income. And I think there's no better way to do that than being an entrepreneur. I really do. And I also believe that the way that we're going as a, as a culture, as a community, really the globe right now, is technology is taking over. 70% of all the jobs that exist today can be eliminated by technology and computer. It's only a matter of time. So, you know, I say that to say that there's a, a clear direction and it's a dichotomy that's taking place right now. If you're going to have a job, you're going to be treated differently 
than if you are an entrepreneur or if you're a real estate owner. You're going to be treated differently. And we have to let people know that, you know, it's nothing wrong with having a job, but you also have to position yourself so that you're in control of your income. And then if you're in control of your income, you're not behoven to any one system. You're not behoven to any government or or any party that comes into power. It's really all about being in control of yourself. And that's really what I want to tell young people. Just be in control of your destiny. And the best way to do that is finding out what God-given talents you have and become an entrepreneur. Then use technology to leverage it. Figure out right now with a website, you can have a marketplace to the globe. There's nothing to restrict you. You know, you may live in California, but you can sell to the whole world. You know, the world is your oyster and you're only limited by your imagination. I think that the future is what we make it. It's going to be promising. And I just want to be one of the people that say, you know, I did something that mattered, made life a little bit easier. And hopefully that changes the world. Yeah, absolutely. to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Although this season is over, we will be back with a new fascinating and illuminating topic for season three. In the meantime, be on the lookout for a special episode I'll be producing and releasing in between season two and three about the commemorations and recognition of the 100th anniversary or the centennial of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. I'll be in Tulsa for part of this occasion, and I cannot wait to share my experiences with all of you. As always, I am deeply grateful for your support and for taking this journey through history with me. Until next time.